This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, it's week 53 for many still working from home, although our office definitely felt like a lot more of our team were coming back. It did. It's a nice feeling. It is a nice feeling, right? Yeah, but the debate about coming back to work continues. <sighs> Ford, for example, is letting 30,000 employees remain at home post-pandemic. And in the meantime, one of our most read stories this week was on how, at long last, Wall Street is seeing a path to returning to work. Yes, indeed. That was among our most read. So with that as our backdrop, we'll get an update on COVID cases and surges. We'll do that with the CEO of Atlantic Health System. We're also going to have back with us the founder and CEO of the global PR firm Edelman. And signing documents digitally during the pandemic, we've all been there, right? Mm -hmm. As a result, DocuSign has seen its business taking off. We're going to check in with the company's CFO and talk about whether this is here to stay. I kind of like doing it this way. Yeah, so do I. Much easier. By the way, I think Congress should do it this way (laughs) instead of delivering, (laughs) you know, hundreds of pages of documents. (laughs) It's time to come into the 21st century, Congress. All right, all of that to come. We begin with this week's cover story, which is about... An essential business, Tim, during the pandemic that also happens to be the one company in the U.S. that makes the nasal swabs for all of our COVID tests. And a little bit of drama, the two (laughs) feuding cousins behind that business. The tale told by Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carville, who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. This is, I think, one of my favorite stories that we've published over the last year. Um, I think it's a great untold story of the pandemic, um, which is basically imagine having a business that, um, you know, a year ago, you basically, the world discovers, um, we're going to need a lot more nasal swabs. And you happen to be basically one (laughs) of two companies in the world that makes them. And this is a company called called Puritan. It's a closely held family company in Maine. Um, At the very outset of the pandemic, we happened to have done a photo shoot, um, basically showing their their operation. And um, Olivia came to us a couple of months later and said, by the way, do you guys know about this epic lawsuit between <laughs> the two uh, cousins who own the business? And we were like, no, tell us more. So Olivia, tell us more. Who are the owners and, and what are they feuding over? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, the owners of Puritan is Timothy Templet and John Cartwright. They're both based up in Maine. This is a family business. It's been around for you know more than 100 years now. And they haven't liked each other for a really long time. One of the most fascinating things about reporting this story is the timing of it all. Like in the lead up to the pandemic, probably two years before COVID really hit or became a household name, they stopped speaking to each other. One of them just walked out of a meeting and refused to have anything to do with the other. And um, they refused to be in the same room, didn't want to talk to each other. And that led to some really big problems inside the company. There was their manufacturing um, equipment wasn't being modernized. They weren't updating their technology. Their back office technology system was 20 years old. They hadn't updated their wages um, or given staff salary increases. And then um, three weeks, literally three weeks before the White House called this company to say, we need you to ramp up swab production. One of them filed a lawsuit against the other to dissolve the entire business. All right, and then walks in the government 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that brought them all together and they're now happy and living <laughs> happily living, you know, ever after. Well, that's a really interesting part of the story is that the government was like, we need you to set aside your differences for the good of the country. And they said that they would, but we access the legal file and inside private courtroom sessions, they continued to fight and are still fighting to this day. Which, um, you know, let's let's go ahead and talk about the money here. Um, how much money has the U.S. government put into <laughs> making sure Puritan keeps the swaps coming? Over the past year, they've invested $250 million into the company and plans are underway for another facility in Tennessee. So that's only going to go up. I mean, why don't they get along? And I know in your story you talk about that it might have started as they were kids. I mean, but it's noticeable. Employees know it. And, and it wasn't until, right, the president visited that they were actually seen together. Yeah. I think that they're just both really stubborn. Um, they both have their own vision for how they see the future of the company going. Puritan has actually got a sister business called Hardwood, which started out making minted toothpicks like a hundred years ago and John Cartwright one of the cousins is really heavily involved in the hardwood side of the business and Timothy Templet is involved in the Puritan the medical side and as these two companies had kind of gone in different directions they really felt struggled to kind of work together to see mm -hmm. a future for both of them so you know just two stubborn people who had their own vision and just didn't want to back down. Okay, so you got to spend some time in Maine this summer, which made the the reporting like so much greater, um, Carol, just to have yeah. Olivia basically being like pitching the story and then being like, by the way, I'm going to be in Maine for a little <laughs> while. I was like, oh my God, you can't make this up. Amazing. <laughs> so you got to know um, basically everyone in Guilford. So so put us on the that ground in Guilford. That wasn't that hard, like, Joel. There are only 1,500 <laughs> people who live in Guilford. <laughs> Um, so that's so right. tell us about the company and how it fits into to Maine and, and the, the meaning of it all. Yeah, well, Guilford is a tiny town. There is one restaurant there, which also serves as the local bar. There's no Starbucks. There's no McDonald's. <laughs> like, very, very small town America. And Hardwood Puritan, or the business, is is the biggest part of the whole town. They mm -hmm. do a lot for the, for the town. They... Um, often put on fireworks shows, they donate playground equipment, they help maintain the local parks. Everyone who lives in Guildford knows the company, has either worked there, had a family member who worked there, or you know knows the owners specifically. This week's cover story, as told by Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carville, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Check out more stories in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week now on newsstands, online, and on the Bloomberg. So much good stuff. Coming up, though, more on COVID and the vaccine rollout. We'll do that with the CEO of Atlantic Health, who reminds us, Tim, that we are not out of the woods, at least not yet. Yeah, the number is plateauing. It's concerning in a lot of places. Yeah. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We're thrilled with the response that we're seeing from our guests in terms of future reservations. That was Bob Chapek, CEO of the Walt Disney Company, this week on Bloomberg, talking about the reopening of Disney's two California theme parks on April 30th. This, Tim, after they were dark for more than a year. It's kind of hard to get your head around it. It is. But, you know, if people are vaccinated, if they're yeah. two weeks out from that second shot, in some cases, perhaps they're starting to feel comfortable with these things. And, yeah. and look, as Emily Chang pointed out to us on Quick Take this week, 
perhaps it could be a good time to go if you're feeling comfortable because there are those capacity restrictions in place and you're not necessarily <gasps> going to be waiting in line. Wouldn't that be sweet to yeah. do that at a Disney park? Well, we had a lot of coronavirus headlines this week. The Biden administration reaching its goal of rolling out 100 million vaccine doses ahead of schedule. The president also eyeing mid-May to begin relaxing travel restrictions. And the World Health Organization supporting AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine after pushback by several European countries. All right. So every day we have a conversation on the virus. Many are voices that we have turned to over the past. And that includes this one, Brian Granulati. He's the CEO of the Atlantic Health System. It's a massive system in the state of New Jersey, covers more than half of the state. He reminded us, though, kind of sobering that we are still living with a pandemic. We are coexisting with COVID, um, and we've been at that plateau for a while. And, um, you know, we're able to care for those patients uh, safely. And um, it's uh, business as usual with everything else that we do. You mentioned and used the word plateau. And we've been hearing that from some of the uh, different medical professionals professionals that we've spoken to, Brian. Um, Does that sitting at a plateau kind of bother you a little bit? You know, it does, um, because we'd love to see this um, start to straight line down. Um, But also we have to be realistic about the fact that this virus is in our communities. And because uh, people are not yet uh, immunized, um, we're going to be having this kind of level of activity. And what I'd point to... For how long? You know, I I think we're going to be in this situation uh, probably until May or June Mm. um, when we are able to get this vaccine into, um, you know, about 60% of the people in the community. Um, and, um, you know, that's hopefully the plan here, uh, but we're waiting on that supply. So I, I want to have realistic expectations about this and make sure I understand. We are going to, you think, see a plateau of, of tens of thousands of new cases each and, and every day in the United States until we get to that point where we can have the majority of the population vaccinated? Yeah, it's endemic in wow. the communities that we serve. And so that's why masking is still really important. Um, That's why uh, testing is still important, because we've got to stay on top of the variants that we're seeing uh, coming out. Um, But uh, that combination of of masking, social distancing, the things that Dr. Fauci talks about, and then getting as much vaccine out as quickly as possible, those are the tickets that that we need to get back to uh, a state and get this economy completely open. Right. I heard you, you know, we heard you say, you know, kind of we stay at this sort of the plateaus until we get more vaccines out. What are you hearing about the supply chain uh, and getting access to more vaccines? So uh, right right now, uh, uh, you know, here in New Jersey, uh, we've been at this vaccine um, since uh, the beginning of the year. And, um, you know, we've got uh, about almost uh, 20 percent of uh, folks have had either a first or second vaccine uh, in New Jersey. Uh, here at the Atlantic Health System, uh, we've distributed over to we vaccinated over 200,000 people um, already. Uh, we have 800,000 people on our waiting list. Wow. And uh, right now we're doing about six to seven thousand vaccinations a day at our 11 centers. But we're prepared to go to 10,000 a day as soon as we get the supply. And so the supply um, is on its way. Um, I think uh, the combination of the steps that uh, the Biden administration has taken to use the, the, their power to uh, get the vaccine uh, manufactured, uh, the fact that we now have three vaccines that uh, work um, uh, equally well on the most important thing, which is getting really sick or dying, uh, is an important piece. 
And because we have a vaccine like J&J, which is a different format, and it's a one-shot vaccine, it gives us uh, a lot of opportunities to get more portable with that vaccine and to get into places that, that we haven't been able to serve yet. Um, and uh, we're excited about that. You heard me mention that Ohio is expanding vaccines to anyone over the age of, of 16. Alaska has already done that uh, for people live, living and working in the state. Is that something you see as the essential next step to get over the next hurdle? Yeah, you know, um, here in New Jersey, um, we've gone through different iterations of, of expanding the pool. But uh, what that's done is it's created the waiting list, quite frankly, because we don't have the supply yet to be able to serve the demand that gets created. So, you know, we have over 4.7 million people eligible for a vaccination right now. So, uh, you know, I understand why states are, are, you know, kind of just completely opening up, but, you know, you've gotta be smart about this and set priorities or else you're just increasing a queue. And uh, so I think the way that New Jersey's doing this is making sense. We've added teachers, uh, which are really important. I know at one of our mega centers that we do in conjunction with the state and the Morris County, New Jersey, you know, we just went over our 100,000 patients, uh, and that happened to be a teacher. Uh, from Morris County, New Jersey. Hey, so Brian, one thing we wanted to ask you, um, Tim and I, you know, we were noting that we are seeing restaurants in New York and New Jersey, they are able to increase their capacity in a big way. So we are increasingly seeing our society and our economy opening up, good on one hand, but I do wonder as somebody who oversees this massive healthcare system and can see how quickly it can get overwhelmed, does it worry you a little bit? And what are you worried about? You know, Carol, it, it does it does worry us uh, a bit. Um, but one of the things that I have confidence in is that uh, here in New Jersey, we've been following the science, mm-hmm. and we've been pretty careful. Uh, you know, and I think uh, I think there's been some criticisms uh, about that. So I'm confident that uh, beginning to gradually reopen things like restaurants and um, uh, other venues, uh, it's an important part of of getting back to a, a, a normal. Uh, and uh, I support it, but we also have to stay pretty vigilant, and we have to do uh, testing, and we have to do contact tracing when we do see outbreaks, and then take the appropriate actions. But again, if people use common sense, wear a mask, um, wash their hands, uh, stay socially distanced, uh, you can you can um, go into restaurants. Uh, right now, about 64% of our workforce has gotten vaccinated, um, and um, you know we've had a a full court press on that since the beginning of the year. The vaccine playing a big role in people's decisions to return to workplaces. That was the CEO of the Atlantic Health System, Brian Granulati. Still ahead? The most important thing to say out of this is America is in shock. And as a result, most individuals don't trust many institutions. The latest trust barometer when we come back. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. We all know it's a little more than one year since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. So much has happened since. And many have said going back to normal 
quote-unquote, is not what happens next since so much has changed as a result of the health crisis. One way to see how that has impacted trust in our society is through the Edelman Trust Barometer. This is an index that really shows how individuals feel about business, government, institutions, media, and more. The index has been updated throughout the year, including this past week. I find this as a gut check for me. So we got the latest data batch from the founder and CEO of the global communications firm Edelman. We're talking about Richard Edelman. He began with how they actually came up with all this data. We talked to 2,500 Americans um, across the economic spectrums, across the geographies, and um, we do it online. And um, we lasted it uh, in uh, December. And you'll recall that uh, business was the most trusted institution in the world for the first time. The deep divide between a uh, Trump voter and a Biden voter, um, for example, especially about media, where mm-hmm. there was a 40-point difference in terms of trust. Um the only thing they could agree on was uh, that business is trusted, <laughs> and especially and especially my employer. That my employer, that trust is local. That uh, you know, I, I trust my CEO, my colleagues at work, and um, so you know, things near me because I can control that relationship. Well, okay, and so that was last time around. What's interesting in this time around is there's not a lot of trust of anything. Yeah, well, Carol, I think. The most important thing to say out of this is America is in shock. I I wrote my essay Mm -hmm. about America in trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I I think half the people we surveyed said they knew someone who had been hospitalized or was dead and, um, you know, had gotten sick from COVID. And and, uh, two-thirds said, I'm still living in a pandemic survival mode. And I know the markets are going up and and, and everybody's optimistic about the future, but the markets are not seen today. Um, And, you know, it's a real um, kind of stunning thing that more people have died than, than in, in World War II, World War I, Vietnam, and Korea. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's, we, we are literally, you know, t- 25% of the deaths of the world, something like this. It, it, it's scary. It's shocking. Well, I can hear it in your voice too, Richard. And, and you're right. When we, I think about this when we actually it's not just numbers and stats that we roll off here. It's, it's individuals. And as you said, you know, most people either know someone or know someone who lost someone because of COVID specifically, you know, listen, you have been talking to CEOs for so many years, you know, how is this kind of changing how they will run their companies going forward? Especially if, if they're seeing these surveys and they're saying people that our employees don't trust us. So I think they feel a special responsibility after this year to do differently. And I actually feel very inspired by that. You know, we have clients, Unilever, for instance, that changed the song on the ice cream trucks uh, because they found out that it was a racist minstrel song from the 1880s. And within a month, they said, "Okay, we're commissioning a new song with uh, RZA from the clan and and the songs for for Memorial Day are going to be different. Kids are going to have a different jingle. That's the kind of speed and, and agility that, that American business is doing. Or Dan Schulman of PayPal uh, saying, I found out that half my people are living kind of on a you know, hand-to-mouth way, and I have to raise their wages. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, flexibility like I've never seen before, Carol. Yeah, which is really remarkable. You know, it's interesting, too, Richard, like some of the uncomfortable conversations we've been having, and one individual said to me, 
And and she's like, you're not going to believe this is going to come out of my mouth. And this is from a black American said, you know, we need to kind of thank Donald Trump in some ways because there are conversations that came out over the last year to some extent because of some of what he said and the conversations that came out of that and that we're having on a corporate level that that we didn't have before, to be fair. Well, I, I think one big thing that, that really is important, though, that I, I want the listeners to, to process is we cannot, as business, force our employees to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. 70% of our respondents said, listen, uh, I, I'm prepared to consider it, but don't compel me. Uh, and the same thing about only 60% are prepared to go back to work, to the workplace, to, to the city, uh, because they're still afraid. Only 15% said that they're ready to take the subway. 20% said they're ready to fly. 25% saying they're ready to go see grandma. That's the founder and CEO of the global communications firm Edelman, Richard Edelman. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, how many of you out there signed at the bottom line digitally during the pandemic? Uh, I know I did. I many did. Times. I did. I did. And I kind of love doing it. Kind of forgetting how to sign my name, Carol. Yeah, exactly. All right. We'll have more on that with the CFO of DocuSign. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. DocuSign, you know uh, it's the electronic signature company used by mortgage, government, insurance, healthcare, and many, many more industries. It has been one of the companies that saw its business boom during the pandemic. The stock, too, Tim, on a tear in the last two years. Well, we both have used their services mm-hmm. during the pandemic, and we wanted to hear more about the company's business, the recent quarter, and a post-pandemic world. What does it look like for the company? So we caught up with Cynthia Gaylor, Chief Financial Officer at DocuSign. COVID has, you know, just created huge challenges for everyone and disrupted options um, everywhere. But amid those um, challenges, we found ways to really help our customers and and really have felt honored to play a critical role in helping people move forward um, all over the world. And that's kind of showed up um, somewhat in our business performance, but just um, in how folks are using our products. Well, and this, you know, I think I've seen it in some of the documents you guys shared with us. I mean, this was a milestone year for you, a game changer, safe to say? Yeah, for sure. We crossed the billion dollar in revenue mark earlier in the year, right before the uh, the pandemic hit. And um, we're well on our way to a billion and a half and, and kind of um, growing to two billion over the course of this year. So talk to us about some of the things that we saw in this most recent quarter. Um, you know, we're looking at quarterly revenue up 57% year over year. We're looking at billings, uh, an increase of 46% year over year. I mean, listen, these are off the chart numbers. What does a post-COVID DocuSign world look like? It's really interesting, and it's a great question. I mean, we think we're well-positioned across all the secular trends that you're seeing. If you think about, you know, we're well-positioned for the anywhere economy. If you think about just accelerating digital workflows and kind of digital first being a priority for so many people and and so many companies, um, you know, DocuSign's fits right in, in kind of a major pillar um, across a anywhere economy where people are looking to do um, anything from anywhere. 
Well, and that's kind of interesting. I mentioned that, you know, we used it for something at home and my co-host did as well. Uh, it, it is interesting that there are trends out there, whether it was in e-tail, retail, uh, e-commerce specifically, there are things that many would say we're not going back on telemedicine. And I do wonder if the world is ready uh, based on what you're seeing, the people that you're talking to, your customers that you're walk, you know, talking to, that this is just one of those things that it just makes sense. We're not going to go back. Yeah, for sure. I think the, um, you know, the acceleration in our demand and the surge in adoption over the course of the, the year was really um, accelerated by COVID and kind of an urgent need. But once people are working with our products on the platform and you can see that you can do things um, faster, cheaper, smarter, more secure, you're not going to go back to pen and paper in the way you were doing things before. And it's interesting because with our notary product coming out, you know, nobody would like to go to the notary and get things notarized pre-pandemic. Uh, um, and to be able to do that online, we don't think people will, will go back to pen and paper in that way. Well, and I do wonder, too, specifically, you know, what do you say to folks that say, listen, you're just a pandemic play. Uh, it's a stay-at-home stock. You know, we talk about them all the time on air and say that once we reopen, that's not going to be the case. I know you're talking about, you know, kind of making the case here, but what do you say to people who say that to you? It's just not what we're seeing in the business. Um, you know, the strength that we've seen in the business um, is, is continuing, and we're seeing uh, quite a bit of tailwinds coming into this year, coming off of last year. But also, again, once you um, use the products, they're easy to use. You look at our customer NPS scores. A lot of our customers say their customers love them because they use DocuSign, right? Because it is just it's so much easier to do uh, digitally and, and kind of when you think about the digi digital transformation that so many um, companies are going through across industries, DocuSign is really a, a, a foundational um, building block of how to uh, do agreements and, and do digital workflow um, online. All right, so let's talk numbers. So um, from what I understand is you've got, you know, about 900,000 customers, more than a billion users right now. We're looking at revenue uh, projected of maybe just under $2 billion for the 2022 uh, fiscal year. And I just wonder, give me an idea of the numbers. How many more customers can you do you anticipate in the next year or two years? Uh, how many more users? Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen tremendous growth in our customer base. And, and a data point for you is we added almost as many customers this past year as we had at the time we went public. And when we went public, the company was 15 years old already. So mm. we added a tremendous number of customers. And I think that's really a testament to just how people um, use the product, but also uh, COVID accelerating things people would have done uh, uh, anyway. Um, they just did it faster. And so we, we expect that to continue. We don't necessarily forecast out um, the number of customers per se, but if you think about it, uh, you know, we're ending the year with uh, just over 890,000 customers, so almost a million customers. When you think about how many companies are in the U.S. alone, it's over 27 million. So the opportunity we're just really scratching the surface of. Um, we have a $50 billion market opportunity, 
We're the largest player by far in our in our space across e-signature and the agreement cloud, and and we just are kind of capsulating a year that's almost what a billion uh, a billion and a half of, of revenue. So we just have a lot of uh, a lot of runway, and particularly because a lot of that market is kind of offline to online, we believe we can continue to add customers at a a, um, a good clip here going forward. What do you say though, Cynthia? To you know, I'm thinking listeners in our audience and the Bloomberg investor that's out there, the Bloomberg audience, you know, your stock was up 200% last year, it was up 85% the year before, we're looking at uh, your stock trading at more than 155 times estimated earnings per share for the coming year. Um, Do you feel like you need to manage expectations a little bit because of the dramatic growth you've seen in the last year? Yeah, so I mean, we have seen tremendous growth. And and as I said, we're, we're kind of just scratching the surface of the opportunity ahead of us. And we're also you know, guiding um, to significant growth at scale. And I think when you think about 50% growth in the overall business over the course of the year, you know, our strong guide going into fiscal um, 22 implies um, uh, 35% uh, revenue growth, kind of mid 30% revenue growth Mm -hmm. at scale. That's pretty tremendous growth. There's not that many SaaS software companies that are growing at those rates um, at this type of scale. And, and the, because the market opportunity is so big and we're competing against pen and paper manual process to um, a more automated process, it feels like we have lots of runway and we really think long-term about the business and how do we execute against the long-term opportunity right. relative to kind of the, you know, the day-to-day uh, trading environment. How do you view competition? Uh, Dropbox, um you know, acquiring uh, the document sharing platform DocSend. So how do you look at, you know, what's going on more broadly in the space? How does something like that, that link up affect you? Sure. Yeah. There, I mean, there's been some consolidation of some of the smaller players in the space, but mm-hmm. to give you a sense, we spend more in R&D um, on e-signature than our next uh, nearest competitor has in revenue. So we have, um, you know, market share that's that's multiples of um, what others have, and so a lot of the companies that you mentioned, they are um, they're actually partners of ours, and and um, different companies may buy a scribble signer um, to kind of add to their um, product portfolio. But when you think about DocuSign and you think the comprehensive nature of our application, of our API and integrations, how we're integrated into workflows across the ecosystem. If you think about where we fit with customers, that we serve serve the smallest uh, mom and pop um, customers to the mm-hmm. largest enterprises, and so the scalability, the security, um, the workflow pieces of the agreement cloud that we serve, and, and we're a trusted brand, right? We, um, you know, have very high NPS scores. We have kind of the security and all the privacy features that a lot of these other companies um, don't have. So we partner across the ecosystem. Right. Um, and we're not as concerned about, you know, different companies buying um, a very small player and integrating that into their products because it's not necessarily competitive with what we're doing and the broad uh, the broad market that we're serving. I'll take that as you're not worried then. <laughs> Is that <laughs> Okay. Hey, listen, you, meant, you took me somewhere where I want to go, security issues and privacy issues. Um, you know, Bloomberg had an exclusive story about um, the hackivist, hack activists, uh, who basically tapped into, you know, tons of surveillance cameras around the globe just to show how easy it is. What about, though, when we're throwing up really important documents uh, in the cloud and elsewhere? Um, how do you ensure, you know, the security of all of that? Because that's going to be a big thing 
something that, you know, people are going to think twice if there's any kind of problems. Of course. And that's an area that we're investing a lot in um, across our platform and in our infrastructure. And so it's a really top of mind area, particularly for enterprises, but also kind of in the long tail of all the customers that we serve. So we invest a lot in R&D, in security, in kind of um, all the compliance pieces um, required to operate at our scale. So, I mean, international is growing um, tremendously for mm-hmm. us. It's, it's about 20% of our revenue, and in Q4 it grew 83%, mm-hmm. um, which is it was just quite substantial. It's, um, it's approaching a $300 million run rate um, uh, in terms of revenue for us. Um, and we have a really unique go-to-market with our digital, um, which really feeds and creates lead gen into our direct business. Yeah, that's just one of those companies that we'll find out post-pandemic whether or not the business momentum continues. That was Cynthia Gaylor, Chief Financial Officer at DocuSign. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. More ahead in our next hour, including... As an entrepreneur and a businessman, I couldn't sort of stand back and Uh, and just let people continue to be executed. Sir Richard Branson talking to us all about a new initiative. Plus, from the Bloomberg Equality Summit, corporate voices, including one well-known to our Bloomberg audience on criminal justice reform. Also, a new data expose showing how white and male some U.S. companies are. And we're going to wrap it up with the CEO of Ocean Spray on the pandemic, yes, and also on making his own TikTok video after another one of someone drinking Ocean Spray went pretty viral during the pandemic. Cue the Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) We've all watched it. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including some highlights from our Equality Summit and coverage of the magazine. It's got a common thread about the role of corporations and corporate voices in bringing about change when it comes to many things, including criminal justice. All that, plus the CEO of Ocean Spray on the pandemic running a co-op and a TikTok video that went viral. How many times did you watch it? Uh... (laughs) I actually lost count. Yeah, watched it so much. We begin this hour with a few stories, though, on equality. A big theme from the Bloomberg Equality Summit this week is the changing role that businesses and leaders are taking on society. One group of executives began a campaign to push governments to end the death penalty. Many countries have abolished it, but the U.S., China, Iran, Saudi Arabia are among those that still execute people. Now, this group is led by Virgin Group founder Sir Richard Branson. Branson and the CEO of the nonprofit Responsible Business Initiative for Justice, Celia Willette, spoke with me and Jennifer Zabasaja on Bloomberg Quick Take. We talked about the group's mission, as well as balancing doing business in a country with human rights violations. It is, in my opinion, um, inhumane and barbaric. Um, It doesn't deter or or reduce crime. Uh, It doesn't make communities safer. Um, uh, But, you know, perhaps most importantly, it has a shocking rate of error. I mean, if you take um, the U.S., I, I, I have personally met 150 people who've been freed from death row, having been found to be innocent. Um, And uh, it took enormous uh, time and effort by lawyers to to prove their innocence. Um, Most of those people were black. Um, uh, And when you meet them, they they, they are some of the most delightful people you could meet. Um, uh, The the fact that um, they could have have been executed was palpably wrong. Um, So as, as a 
<laughs> entrepreneur and a businessman, I couldn't sort of stand back and uh, and just let people continue to be executed for crimes they didn't commit. And 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 we we decided to try to rally rally business leaders um, to speak out strongly about it. Well, Celia, what role what role does the private sector have when it comes to pushing government reforms? Businesses have like such loud voices. You know, they have kind of currency on the table when it comes to speaking to legislators in particular. Um, you know, they have a kind of uh, credibility and uh, their sort of unusual allies at any campaign. And, uh, you know, I think when they join forces and they kind of partner closely with the campaign community and they really listen to what the campaigners and advocates need and movement leaders lead and and offer that um, that that thing in return and meet them at the table and offer them something to support. That's when kind of real impact and real change happens. And, and I think that's what we're seeing with this campaign. Richard, I, I'm wondering what role as a leader you have when you balance that you want to do business in a country, you want to do business with a country, but the country is doing something that you don't necessarily agree with. For example, the human rights violations that have been documented in China you know, this is a global uh, a market where a lot of global companies want to be. How do you balance that as a manager? Sometimes you don't do business. I mean, like in, in Brunei, when they said they were going to execute gay people or in Uganda, where they said they were going to execute gay people, um, we said, you know, we, 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 we cannot do business with you as a country if you're going to behave like that. I think, I think when it comes to um, capital punishment, um, you know, there, there, there are there's raging arguments on both sides and, and a lot of people just don't don't know the facts and you know my, my wife has you know if some if somebody commits a, a, a heinous crime uh, she'll want to see them executed whereas myself and the rest of our family definitely definitely would not uh, and it's only when I explained explain to my wife and and to other other businesses uh, all the, all the facts and they have all the facts on their fingertips that they understand that the death penalty is wrong. Um, uh, and, and countries can be a little bit like that too. You, you, we've, you've got to get in there and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and persuade them. And, and, um, and fortunately, about 170 countries have now been persuaded and they've abolished the death penalty. I mean, you've got North Korea, you've got Iran, you've got China, um, uh, 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 you know, and I'm afraid you've got America. Um, but um, the vast majority of civilized countries um, and Western countries um, have, have abolished it, and some for as long as 70 years without any uh, increase in crime as a result. So, Richard, I got to ask you about space and SPACs, two things that you are, are very involved in. Uh, Virgin Galactic, the space company you founded, uh, were you surprised that Chamath Palihapitiya, the, the chairman, of course, of Virgin Galactic, were you surprised when he liquidated his personal stake in the company earlier this month? After all, in an interview last month with my colleague Eric Schatzker, he said that he was committed to his SPAC holdings. You know, we're talking about the death penalty today, and I'm not going to get drawn um, on, on other subjects, um, except to say that I have enormous respect for Shamath. He's still got uh, his stake um, in us through his SPAC. Um, and uh, and you know I think he's he he he, had, he plans to make a big a big announcement of how how he's going to use that particular money and uh, so watch this space. Look, I, I had to ask him about Virgin Galactic. It was a big deal when the chairman of that company just a few weeks ago sold his entire personal stake. Listen, it's the kind of thing that we focus on here at Bloomberg because it gives you an idea of the you know commitment of an executive to the initiative that they're working on. 
And of course, the important work that he and the Responsible Business Initiative for Justice are doing. That was Sir Richard Branson, along with the nonprofit CEO, Celia Willette. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still ahead, more on criminal justice reform, this time with a well-known hedge fund and cryptocurrency investor. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Carol, at the Bloomberg Equality Summit this week, you hosted a discussion on a corporate response to criminal justice reform. It, it focused on how companies and corporate voices are stepping into criminal justice reform conversations. And speaking of voices, I had two great ones. Michael Novogratz, he's founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. He's chair of the Bail Project, founding partner of the Reform Alliance. And then, of course, someone well known to our Bloomberg audience, Mike, is, along with Robert Rooks. He's the CEO of Reform Alliance. He's also co-founder of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. I began by asking, what What's the smart, productive conversation that we all need to be having when it comes to criminal justice reform? To start with, I think we need to grade ourselves. And on a one to a hundred, we're about a 12. Uh, we really are an F. We have a horrific system that degrades people from the moment they're arrested. Uh, and so if you think about the process of criminal justice, right? There's supposed to be some justice, which we have all kinds of racial biases, so there's not a lot of justice, but there also needs to be an end goal. And the end goal in the U.S. system really is caging people, it's degradation, it's it's humiliating people. There's nothing that tries to bring people from the system and bring them back as whole citizens. Uh, you can contrast that with what happens in Europe, right? To be the warden of a prison in, in Germany or in Norway, you need a master's or a Ph.D. in rehabilitation. Every single prison warden I've met in the United States starts as a guard and moves his way up the system with no formal education. And so the whole system in the U.S. isn't geared to helping people deal with their trauma. Uh, and so we need a system that literally looks at people as citizens and says, OK, these people have screwed up. We're going to take their liberty uh, for a while and we're going to help them reenter society as productive taxpayers. And so it's just a, it's economically a stupid system. It's morally a bankrupt system. Uh, and we need an overhaul from top to bottom. Robert, come on in on this in terms of what you think, what Mike just said, and what you think needs to be part of this big, broad conversation so that we get it right. Carol, thank you so much for the question. And Mike, you hit it right on the head. And I'm going to come at the question from a personal perspective. I grew up in Dallas, Texas in the 80s and 90s. I saw firsthand a community dealing with the crack cocaine epidemic. I experienced firsthand what it was like to live and grow up in that community where our needs were were around treatment and poverty, but we got incarceration, we got cops and bars instead. And so over the years, what we've seen is this generational impact on misplaced investments in our communities. And our communities have suffered. So now we have a, a, a system that has 2.3 million people incarcerated, 4.75 million people on probation and parole, and we're not doing anything to solve or address these issues. The conversation we need to be having right now is one about solutions. People have been organizing and in the streets for years, and we have done nothing about it, systemically nothing about it. And I think now is the time of listening, and we need to put forward real solutions so we can organize ourselves for a better tomorrow. There is no doubt about it 
socially, the, the social component of just doing the right thing ethically. But there's a statistic I came across that about some 70 million Americans with criminal records are barred by law or stigma from contributing to the economy. I mean, there is an economic impact. There's a business impact. What role can business play in decreasing the rate of people entering the criminal justice uh, system? Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think they could play a big, big role. I mean, there's a Bojangles box behind me. Uh, and I'm a, an investor in that company. And me and our team at Galaxy, we pushed the, the management to hire formerly incarcerated. And it took six months of going down there and trying to convince them. And then they finally did. They were shocked at, A, when they announced it, they had managers crying that, wow, we'd be a company that would actually hire my second cousin who's been, who's been unemployed for the three years he's been out of prison. Uh, and so, A, there was an emotional win, but it turns out there's a whole lot less turnover with the guys that get a, their, their first job and, and get started. And in the quick serve uh, restaurant business, turnover is a big cost. And so it's been a hugely successful program. And so part of this is educating businesses uh, that formerly incarcerated citizens can make great employees. Uh, some of it was working with the state of North Carolina in this case uh, to change their parole laws. Right. We have horrific and stupid parole laws in America. It's like we put marbles on an ice skating rink in front of returning citizens who are barely st standing to start because they've just been in jail for six years or eight years and say walk. Uh, and so one of the Reform Alliance's main missions is, you know, probation and parole. Uh, so in North Carolina, in that case, we worked with the attorney general to change the parole rules for our guys so they couldn't get sent back for a speeding ticket or an illegal U-turn or a stupid parole violation. Uh, because you can't be an employer and you know have an employee not show up and not know where he is because he got put back to jail for something dumb. So Robert, you know, you too, as part of your platform and what you're working at at Reform Alliance is jobs are an important part of this. Talk to us about how jobs can prevent somebody from going back to jail, can, can put them on a completely different trajectory. The, the truth of the matter is most of the laws that created mass incarceration came from politicians and media. Corporations didn't have anything to do with it at the beginning. However, corporation policies perpetuate over-incarceration and systemic neglect for people. The 70,000 barriers that people face, many of them had to do, have to do with employment opportunities. So here are some very specific things corporations can do. Number one, background checks. Corporations do not have to use background checks as a way of keeping people out of uh, the, the, uh, the, the, those, those particular jobs. Uh, background checks absolutely should be used. People should know uh, who's coming in, um, but it should not be a single factor for people that have uh, uh, felony offenses in terms of keeping them out. So that's number one. Another key thing that co corporations can do is to start to see uh, the, the entire community and the, and the, and the full person. Uh, the truth of the matter is people on probation and parole um, are, are living um, their lives in their homes, but they are still in prison. And what I mean by that is individuals uh, often have stipulations to their probation and parole that keep them from work, that keep them from providing for that family. Let me, uh, their family. Let me give you one example. An individual may have a 9.30 a.m. meeting with their probation officer. Uh, a, a three o'clock meeting uh, for anger management or drug treatment. And then they have to be at home on curfew from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Where is it, where are the opportunities for people to work? 
How, how can someone provide for their family if that's their day, if that's their schedule? So we need to have laws that allow people to check in with their probation officer, but also be able to work and provide for their family. That was Mike Novogratz, well-known to our Bloomberg audiences. He's founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital, chair of the Bail Project, founding partner of the Reform Alliance, along with Robert Rooks, CEO of Reform Alliance and co-founder of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. More conversations from the Bloomberg Equality Summit, just head to BloombergLive.com. Still to come, speaking of equality when it comes to U.S. companies, guess what? Well... They're still largely white and male. That story up next in Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. As we mentioned, Bloomberg Business Week did a deep dive into equality. We've covered several of those stories on air last week. Two more, though, in the issue we definitely wanted to bring you, Tim, and that was one about new data that exposes precisely how white and male some U.S. companies really are. The other on the diversity officer hiring boom happening at U.S. companies. Reporting on both is Bloomberg News Managing Diversity reporter Jeff Green. He joined us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, who gave props to the team effort to bring the data story to life and make it interactive on the Bloomberg and online. To be clear, I, uh, the the magazine and, and me deserve very little credit for this one. <laughs> Same uh, with me. Yeah, we, 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 we tried to make the, the team tried to make the, the interaction interactive be you know the the glory here and and we were able to take a slice of this and bring it into print because I, we thought it was such an important topic um, and, and that is really like the heart of this thing was to actually like look at corporate America and and it does as you would expect it is very white but to actually be Bloomberg and put data behind that and actually attempt to show progress was really what the this project was all about so so Jeff talk to us about how you went about getting this data, what it revealed, and, and what you're starting to watch as this is an ongoing project. Yeah, I mean, I think the really the really key thing here is that when we first did this last year, 25 companies were uh, were agreeing to show us this data, which is not required to be released publicly. In fact, the Supreme Court has made it very clear they can't be compelled to do it, so it has to be voluntary. And, and so in this time around, we have 37, with another 30 promising yet this year to show. So the among the S&P 100 the 100 largest companies in the US a majority a significant majority by the end of this year will be sharing this data that they have been keeping private for decades so i mean that's almost more interesting than what it's showing which is kind of what we know but in a way that now makes them much more accountable to it we'll talk about this uh the EEO1 form because that's where some of this data come from right Right, and this is very important for people to understand because there's been there were a lot of people said, "Why are you being such a stickler? Why are you saying EEO one or nothing?" Well, what happens is every year, all companies with more than a hundred employees, except during COVID, they've been delayed, but they will be doing it again basically next month. Have to report the racial and gender breakdown of their workforce mm -hmm. in detail, and and there's a it's very you know very instructive as how to do it. So. Even if it's not shared publicly, there is an aggregate database of the entire workforce for the United States that, that, that we can see. And there's no such thing, other, there's no other source for this kind of information. So when a company gives us 
their individual form, we can compare them against their industry. We can compare them against the country. We can do things that you can't do with what people just throw up on their diversity page and say, this is what we're showing you. So. Well, I always feel like the devil's in the details. The deeper you, you really dive into numbers, you really get a much truer picture. And it's really cool. Like, as Tim mentioned, it's interactive. So you can put in Dow, Costco, Facebook, uh, NVIDIA, and really get a, a good handle on how they're doing. Overall, though, when we do take that big, broad look, Jeff, how are companies doing? What are the numbers? Well, I mean, it's kind of where we know they, they say they are, but in a, in a much more detailed way. And it also just kind of shows how much diversity right now is sort of focused on um, Asian employees tend to be overrepresented in terms of where, they, where companies shift. If they're not, a lot of the companies that have given us their data actually are underrepresented in terms of white workers, but where they shift to is um, in Asian workers, especially tech, and Hispanic and black workers, the, 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 un, the I guess the poorer employees are not faring as well. There's a few exceptions where you have companies that, that are uh, maybe in the consumer space, um, you look at McDonald's and Starbucks, have managed to move some of their employees from, from the workforce into the, into the management ranks. But it's it's it really kind of shows, especially if you if you look at it all as a big snapshot, which you can do with one of the graphics, kind of where everything falls out. There's very few companies that are um, overrepresented or even represented in terms of black employees, for example. I think there's a very much a tone of like you know, okay, this doesn't look good, but it's better than being like cited as among the nos that won't share. Obviously, some companies are still willing to, you know, stand by. They don't think this is a good measure. They have lots of reasons why they don't want to show this to us. But I think ultimately, the, you know, sort of the the momentum is against them now. And companies are basically saying transparency is part of the is basically the cost of entry now to show that you're you're serious about this. Where a year or two ago, um, the, the focus was on gender which is a lot easier to show because it's one measure. Incredibly important and, and really all about the data. Like so much we yeah. do at Bloomberg, it's telling a story through data and the data is there. And I feel like, you know, when you put the data points out there, there's no like, wait, is that, you know, there's no gray lines. The no. data is what it is. That was Bloomberg News Managing Diversity reporter Jeff Green, who joined us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Be sure to check out the interactive feature online. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we wrap up with something that went a bit viral during the virus. Yeah, you may have heard of it. <laughs> How lip syncing to Fleetwood Mac got the attention of the world and of the CEO of Ocean Spray. That's next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Now there you go again, you say you want your freedom. You recognize that, right? I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> if you didn't if you didn't know the song before, which, you know, you should have known the song before, you recognize it from the TikTok video, the video causing sales of a song that was decades old to spike for Fleetwood Mac. That viral video during the pandemic, Nathan Apodaca in Idaho cruising and lip syncing <laughs> to Fleetwood Mac while drinking ocean spray cranberry juice. Yeah, I watched it a lot over and over again. It just <laughs> made me smile. And as you said, so did everyone else. It was watched tens of millions of times. And as you said, Nathan ended 
up, uh, listen, we all saw him. We all got to know him. And he ended up with a new cranberry red truck and a bunch of juice from Ocean Spray. (laughs) To hear about that, Carol, you caught up with Tom Hayes, the president and CEO of the ag cooperative Ocean Spray. Tom, also former CEO of Tyson Foods. When I first first heard it and saw it, actually, was uh, a friend of mine sent me a text. And he said, you got to check this out. He goes, what an amazing opportunity for Ocean Spray. So it was a, a buddy of mine sent it along. And it was, it was really cool. I mean, I had the same sort of impression I think everybody did when they saw it, that this, this guy, Nathan Apodaca, was very sort of uh, distraught on the one hand, that his car yeah. broke, his truck broke down, he couldn't get to work. On the other hand, he sort of took it in stride and you know, made this video, and everybody's like, wow, geez, in a time when we need it need that positivity he delivered and so that was that was the first time I saw it it was a lot of po- a lot of positivity I mean again we talked about it so much in the newsroom and you guys ended up you know giving him a new cranberry red truck and a bunch of uh, ocean spray as well um, so kudos to you guys you also did a similar video um, and and that's pretty cool that you did that yeah thanks you know the, t- the team really sprung to action and they said how can we take um, full, you know, the, to this opportunity and take it to its fullest extent and really help Nathan get, you know, what he needs, which is a truck and transportation. Uh, and the team jumped to, to action and we said, this is uh, great if we're going to do this for him and give him the transportation, why not make the truck cranberry red? And then why not load it up with, you know, cranberry ras- cran raspberry juice in the back, which is what he was drinking on the skateboard. And you know, when I uh, was asked to play a role, I said, you know, absolutely easy decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> happy to do it. And uh, I wasn't, uh, I'm not a skateboarder like he is, but I figured it out. And, you know, if Nick Fleet, Mick Fleetwood could do it, I figured, well, yeah, I should give it a shot. <laughs> We've been playing it all for the folks watching right now on YouTube. Hey, listen, so one year into the pandemic, you know, Tom, what stays with you from a year ago and, and how do things look today? You know, so from a year ago, things were obviously very different mood-wise. People were shocked, scared, not that they aren't now, but it was just uh, nobody knew what to do. Now we do know what to do. Uh, safety protocols in place at our plants. Uh, people, you know, certainly social distancing where they can, and, and we've, you know, um, unfortunately learned to sort of live with it. Yeah, but I, mm-hmm. I would say the thing that has changed at Ocean Spray beyond just the safety protocols is how do we take this opportunity to build positivity in all aspects of our business where we can? So whether it's in, through products and innovation, some of the new items that we've been coming out with, Ocean Spray Wave, which is a new sparkling beverage with caffeine, or Ocean Spray Metally snacking items that are uh, taking the joy of you know dried cranberries and combining them with other you know cool new fruits to create some special moments for consumers. There's been a lot of talk about how do we take what was last year sort of a shocking and you know, disturbing situation. And as we've moved through, you know, what's been, you know, a full year, like how do we make that, you know, a situation that's more of a positive experience for people to the best extent that we can. Well, and I do think about, I want to ask you about the new products in terms of what consumers want, but I do want to ask you about the past year because it has been something where all of a sudden inequities that, have been in society for a long time, really we're front and center and we're having discussions that maybe we weren't having before. What is the role, do you think, of companies and CEOs like yourself and leaders to help, you know, end the conversations or create conversations that result in deliberate action that actually make a difference? I think with all leaders, you know, they are 
on top of organizations and leaders, leadership teams. So the organization and people that are attached to it, whether they're consumers with the brand or they're following on, you know, uh, broadcasts like this, uh, what leaders are doing, mm. they're all looking up and they're looking for role models to, you know, say uh, and do what they expect of, you know, good people. And uh, differently than I think in past situations where people might have been slightly more distracted, they're really tuned in. People were you know, focused on the tubes in front of them or the you know, phones in front of them, and they're, they're just aware of what's happening. I think the moments that leaders have to say, you know, here's uh, what we can do to help the situation versus exacerbate it and bring you know, calmness and sanity back is really what we've tried to do at the company. I think mm-hmm. our board of directors is a very you know, uh, strong group of leaders that you know, our farmers, they've right. been, you know, doing this for hundreds of years, their families have, and they, <laughs> they see an opportunity to say, look, well, we, we know stability, what it looks like, and, you know, team, we expect you to do that, and right. you know, I'm in a fortunate p- position to lead and hopefully bring positivity and, you know, stability, right. and, you know, some, some amount of uh, certainty to where there's a lot of uncertainty. Hey, Tom, what's interesting is, and I think about, like, the last year, I mean, companies, continue to innovate they continue to work on their strategies you guys you know have new products that have come out talk to us about what that development process was like and what's been guiding you know what you the new offerings that you are coming out for consumers sure you know it's um an interesting environment for sure because retailers are not as excited about putting new products on the shelf when they don't have consumers as much as they have Mm. walking through the stores uh it makes it you know, space is a premium. Uh, there's been certainly outages of products, as you are well aware. And so for consumer products companies, making sure that they're really on mark with what their, you know, brands are going to represent to that consumer, what's the insight that you're seeing. And what we have benefited from is the Ocean Spray brand, uh, you know, is 100 years old, uh, nearly 90 years was the last year, our 90th harvest. Close. And so, the, yeah, that's right. And so innovation uh, is against a brand that is well-known and consumers find comfort in it is a space that we took advantage of. So uh, what we've been doing is you know, trying to move ourselves from not just the Norman Rockwell painting, but to be a little more attached to you know, consumers that are uh, newer consumers, so millennials and younger consumers. And the way that we do that is to you know, make sure that we're speaking to them in the channels that they want, but importantly, giving them the products they want. So Ocean Spray Wave is a product that is a sparkling water, but, mm-hmm. is, but infused with, you know, uh, natural caffeine from uh, tea, as well as, you know, the beautiful flavors that we offer at Ocean Spray and the combinations that we're so known for. So that's what, uh, one of the things that we, we saw for sure, that's that consumers are attracted to having, you know, not only hydration all day, but also they want an energy pickup. So having an infused beverage that meets those needs was was certainly first on the radar. The second thing that we just introduced, and I have been making a big deal of it actually today, is our new fruit metallies line. So that's thinking of, you know, the dried cranberry or craisin uh, that we have all come to know and love, combining that with other products that bring immunity, fiber, and probiotics to consumers' lives. And so as they are looking for things that can help them get through this, certainly immunity blends, fiber blends, probiotics are things that resonate and having the ocean spray brand there as a trusted brand but also you know bringing in these uh, new ideas is 
you know, things that we hope are going to be really uh, successful products for us as we pivot away from, uh, you know, you know, sort of our old past, but, you know, still embrace the brand right. that has, you know, brought us to the party. Yeah. Well, and that's what I think a lot of brands that have been around for a century, right, are, are trying to figure out how to adapt to the new market. And I think about, I was listening to you as you were going through uh, the fruit medley, dried fruit blend products, like check, check, check in terms of, you know, fruit, um, we're talking about no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, you know, people are increasingly, and we talk about this a lot on our air, you know, looking, you know, turning around, looking at what's in a product, my teenager does it. Um, This is what people are looking for. And, you know, you understand the food industry increasingly, is this where everything's going as much as it can? As much as it can. And you you call it, um, I think, an important thing that the consumer also wants to know that what they're buying is not only healthy for them, but they're doing good things for, you know, the environment and so forth. So mm-hmm. many consumers, uh, you know, want to make sure that they're buying from a purpose-driven brand. Uh, what, you know, better purpose than what Ocean Spray has, which is to connect our farms to families for a better life. Uh, being in business for 90 years and owned by farmers or all the profit we make goes back to, you know, 700 farmer owners. I mean, there's, there's no better <laughs> purpose-driven company, in my, my view, in the business than that. And then the other thing is, you know, thinking about, you know, what are we doing going forward? So we're not just happy with the fact that, you know, we are uh, owned by farmers, which we love, but what are we going to do to represent what they believe they can do for the future? That's Tom Hayes, the president and CEO of the ag cooperative Ocean Spray. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Snedevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out, too, our Bloomberg Businessweek podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you'll also find our extra podcast this week in recognition of St. Patrick's Day. We caught up with the CEO at IDA Ireland, Martin Shanahan. He oversees Ireland's agency responsible for attracting foreign direct investment. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Bloomberg Business Week gets available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a good weekend, everyone. Grab some ocean spray, sing a little bit of Fleetwood (laughs) Mac, and be safe. This is Bloomberg.